Hello, hello, Chris here with another episode of the Make It Podcast, and we have a conversation today with the writer, director, the one and only Julius Ritter. This conversation happened in late June, and this world moves so quickly that some of the topics we bring up could seem a little dated, even though they're only from a couple of months ago. So just fair warning there. Outside of that, great conversation, very entertaining, and the topics are still incredibly poignant and uh, valuable to filmmaking and filmmakers. So enjoy. You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Hi, my name is Julius Ritter. I'm an independent writer and director. Uh, you might know me from my graphic novel that I just released titled Mr. Misery. And currently I am working on a few projects, one of which is getting my feature screenplay off the ground and financed. Julius Ritter, welcome to the Make It Podcast. What's happening, man? Well, everything is happening. What a time to be alive and what a time to have you on our podcast. I'm, I'm super excited. I mean, you're um, an incredibly unique guy. I think it's going to uh, show quite obviously as we uh, go through the conversation for sure. And this whole thing started from you uh, from an entertainment perspective from a very young age to, to where you're at now. We're going to try to cover that the best we can, the most interesting way. We can, but I want to start uh, with a quote of yours. Uh, you wrote, the creative adult is the child that survived. Talk to us about that quote and uh, what it means to you. I don't know if I necessarily wrote that or not. I believe that is a quote from somebody else, but I could not tell you who exactly. <laughs> All good. Uh, but... <laughs> but but if you were to but, use it, if you borrowed it, then yes, to yeah. elaborate on that quote, I do agree with that quote. Um, I have always been under the notion that uh, not all good art, but a lot of good art comes from pain and struggle a lot of the time. And um, I think children that maybe feel a bit different early on kind of seem to turn into creative adults in the future. Uh, maybe that's not all the time, but I do notice that most creatives that I speak with, when they speak about their childhood, it's not necessarily all the fun that I hear other people talk about when they're speaking on their childhoods. Yeah, it's interesting because I wouldn't have guessed, you know, that was the, the route. You know, I, I I immediately thought about that Kanye West lyric uh, where he's trying to get his inner child to survive so that he can uh, let the creative juices flow. But it, those yeah. are all being crowded out by all the adult stuff that's happening all the time. I got to pay my bills. I, I got to work this contract. Right. Um, so you're taking it more of like the the Picasso sense. Uh, so what did he say that it, it took him his whole life to learn how to paint like a child? 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But for you, it's more about what, is, really that, what is that experience as a child? And 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 look, for the audience, me and you are, are kind of similar. Uh, I, I think it's reversed, right? Like I'm biracial, you're biracial. My mom was mm-hmm. black. My dad is white. But your mom is white. Dad's black. Right. And so um, that's right. Yeah. 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 It's and it's a unique experience. I've often thought, like, should biracial people just maybe in this kind of culture, this zeitgeist, should we be considered our own race at this point? Um, Because there's so many biracial kids and it's such a unique culture and experience. Uh, I had uh, Daniel Vega uh, from East Los High, Emmy nominated actress on the podcast uh, a few um, months ago. And she talked about how it's a very strange thing because you grow up and people will ask you, what are you? And half the mm-hmm. time, um, you know, that question always put her on her heels, but half the time it was black people that asked her that. Right. So has that, was that part of your childhood at all where you're, where you're trying to, to fit the, the two boxes that you're given white box, black box. Of course. Um, I think that was more probably a struggle when you're young and you're kind of trying to figure yourself out. You're trying to, you know, build uh, some sort of persona you're trying to build some sort of identity so you know i think race does come into play when you're doing that and it does make it a tad more difficult when you're being lumped into a certain box by other people and then on the other side you're being lumped into another box by other people and you're sitting here just like i just want to feel like a person you know what i mean i'm just i'm just like i'm just a person i didn't realize it had to be so complicated Um, I think a lot of that shit goes away as you get older, obviously, once you find your identity and realize that, you know, how little that stuff really means in the long run. Um, but yeah, again, that, I think a lot of people that are probably mixed race deal with that, uh, during the childhood era. But once you become an adult, it's like, it's almost, uh, um, an advantage in a way, I think. Well, a lot of times in, in acting, uh, it's, it's considered an advantage, because Absolutely, the casting yeah. director is looking for and in auditions are looking for someone who's racially ambiguous. Um, Ethnically ambiguous is the, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what they always put on the breakdown. And, and, and we'll talk about that a little later because I'm not sure if it's going to endure or maybe it'll change temporarily. But I, I, I go back to the beginning with you. Uh, if you if you go there with me, you started off as a Gap Kids model. And I'm sure that's there was right. a part of that 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 helped out. So. Uh, talk to oh, me yeah. about that a little bit. And, and um, was that kind of your start into entertainment? It was. Yeah, that was actually the very first thing I ever booked in the entertainment industry. I was out here visiting my cousin. I was living in Las Vegas at the time. And um, I'd come out here to visit my cousin every summer who was in the industry. Yeah. And I went to an audition with him for a gap campaign or no, for a guest campaign. Excuse me. And um when I walked in, they were like, oh, my gosh, you're exactly what we've been looking for. <laughs> Somebody who's ethnically ambiguous. Uh, what was it? Uh, a mulatto. That's what they called it back yeah. then. I don't even know if that's right. the proper nomenclature I anymore. That, I hate that name. It means donkey. Uh, yeah, it's not. Yeah, it does. Right. It's not my yeah. favorite. Um, yeah, me either. But, yeah, they were like, you're exactly what we're looking for. So they cast me right there on the spot without an agent or anything. And then um, after I booked that, it was like. I basically had my, as a child model actor, I had my pick of any agency I wanted to go to. Um, so we settled with Ford modeling agency. I got linked up with them. They booked me on like three gap campaigns in a row. And that was like 
that was the jump off of my career right there. That's incredible, man. And what a, we talk about being in the right place, at the right time, you know, and how things Seriously. change. Yeah. And, and, and sort of how things change as you grow up. Um, and you hear these stories about being in entertainment as a child. Do you have any regrets uh, about anything that went on from there and, and how your career progressed from, from getting that opportunity? Uh, no, I mean, I guess in a way it was, it was a hell of a blessing. Um, I had always been interested in writing, but I had never thought about getting into the industry as a writer. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, growing up, I loved movies so much. So in a way, I guess the industry was calling, but I didn't know what facet of the industry I wanted to be in. I just knew I fucking love movies and, you know, I couldn't be a cowboy, but I knew I could maybe play a cowboy in a movie or maybe who who's the person who tells this fake cowboy what to do. Maybe I could do that, you know? Yeah. Um, and I was writing a lot of short stories at the time. So I was, you know, pretty familiar with story building and world building. But again, I just wasn't really sure exactly what I wanted to do. Um, so I think getting into acting first was such a great springboard into me realizing, oh, it's, this is what I want to do. I want to write for the movies. I want to direct movies. I want to make my own movies. Um, so, yeah, to me, it was a blessing. I, I have no regrets. I guess my only regret would be that I didn't maybe um, I wasn't more forceful with learning what was going on behind the camera as much as I wanted to. Mm. You know, I was so focused on the acting aspect and I kind of thought like, oh, this is my lane and this is what they expect of me that I never had the chance to go. Oh, well, what's going on behind the camera here? Maybe I could ask some questions. Maybe I could learn some things. Uh, most of the stuff that I learned, you know, was after the fact. Um, but yeah, understand. do I have any regrets as far as acting? Probably not. I'll understand if you don't remember because uh, you're so young when you when you started. But was there. I know you said you had family in the industry, but was there a moment that you can remember where you said, man, I, if I get the opportunity, I want to try to act or I want to try to model or I want to try to write. I remember seeing, uh, <laughs> I remember watching a, some kind of entertainment show on television and I was real young. I was maybe like six or seven. And I remember, uh, I think it was Steven Seagal came on the screen and they went superstar. Steven Seagal has arrived on the red carpet. And I went, Ooh, <laughs> shit i like the sound of that so uh, maybe that was, that was the first point everywhere i thought ooh, like being an actor you could be a superstar that's interesting i like that but acting was never my calling really because I, I don't really necessarily love to perform i don't really necessarily like to be the center of attention and unfortunately you know acting that kind of comes with the territory um there are certain like roles and things that i can dig into that i do really love but I'd be lying if I said that I had like this extreme passion for acting like I do uh, writing or directing, for example. Yeah, it's it, it's true. You, you've made this shift to be behind the camera after sort of this uh, this pretty cool run. I mean, you've been in CSI and uh, you've been in Like Mike. You've been in all these different movies and TV shows and uh, you've played these roles and, 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 and you're like chipping away and, and at some point you just said, I think it was like uh, maybe between 2008, 2013, you said, we're going to flip this around. All right. I've been yeah. playing these little parts in shows. I've been getting into movies, doing some things. Uh, let's get behind the camera. Let's, let's, let's get on the keyboard and start typing some words out. So mm -hmm. what was it that happened in 2008 that, that made you want to get behind the camera? 
That's a good question, man. I, you know, I was kind of just floating along and I, I had always been a writer, but I had never been able to take that leap and actually write a feature. You know, I was writing so many shorts and I, I almost at one time kind of thought to myself, well, I guess that's just what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to be the kind of guy who writes shorts because yeah. I, I couldn't get past the 30 page mark for some reason. Um, and then somewhere in between that 2008, 2013 area is when it really started to click for me. And I just had like a, a creative renaissance, I guess, in a way. And just all these ideas started coming at me. And I just I really just did a lot of writing in between that time. And it was a lot of shorts. But then around 2012, that's when I wrote my first feature. And after that, it was like, well, this, this is the medium now. I can't write anything shorter than this. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I was, um, I had always wanted to do these movies, but I always thought, oh my gosh, you know, it's, it's so difficult. You got to get a whole crew. You got to get this. But then as you get older, you start to realize, you know what? I could probably do all that stuff. You know, if I really put my mind to this and I, and I get everybody as excited as I am, then maybe I can get this guy to fucking record my sound for me. And I, I know I got all the actors who are going to say my lines. That's no problem. But maybe I can get this other guy to help produce this and get this other guy to help me out. And that's kind of what happened is I think I became intoxicating to other people. They saw my enthusiasm and they were like, now they were hooked and they were taking off work on the weekends and coming out and shooting these little short films and, you know, taking the time out of their day to come help. And that's when it really clicked for me. I said, oh, my gosh, if these people are coming out, you know, at three o'clock in the morning and rolling around in the dark with, uh, you know, chocolate syrup on them to replicate blood, then there must really be something here. People really must believe in what I'm doing. Yeah, there's something magical about it. And, you know, people who re write business books don't fully understand that, that you, you know, you could be you know, the best salesperson in the world is the person who truly believes and is enthusiastic about the thing they're trying to sell. And if you're trying to sell an idea, it's really powerful. And film is so collaborative. It's the ultimate uh, case yeah. study in collaboration. And so even though you're in charge, it's like, yeah, but I'm borrowing the ideas and creativity from a whole host of and variety of people. That's and that's right. how we're going to be able to drive it forward and, and move it, move it to the next stage. Was the, um, the first film you EP'd, you executive produced Americana. Is that what it was called? That's right. Yeah. Um, how was that process for you? What, and, and it was it more than EP or was it like, were you just financing this or I considered myself a creative producer on that one more than even the executive. Um, and also I wrote the script and kind of came up with the characters and what their arc was going to be. It basically had started as an idea for a pilot mm -hmm. and I, I had, you know, each one of these guys arcs planned out, but all we had was the money to do just a pilot. Um, and I, I, Can I ask I, you what I it, what it cost, um, Julius to, to do the, to do the pilot. At the time? Just shy of $20 million. No. Uh, I don't know if I, I don't know if I should be the one to, uh, to give out the budget. Um, I know I like to keep that kind of stuff kind of tight to the chest. Uh, I'll put it this way. It cost more than I wanted it to, and it still wasn't enough, as is with basically every single project. Um, well, the, well, the reason I ask is because there's a lot of creatives that listen to this podcast and then also that we work with. They want to shoot pilots, and they're trying right. to figure out. Um, should I spend $250,000 on a pilot that might not get picked up or should I, no, should I spend $20,000 on it and see if it's a good idea? Yeah. I would like to answer the question, but I honestly feel like I'd be doing a disservice because if I was to put a quantifiable number on it, I 
I wouldn't want to hold anyone back and say, I don't have that amount of money, so I can't fucking do it. You could do it for no money. I don't want anybody to think that they're ever held back by a budget because as an artist, you're never held back by a budget. That's that's bullshit. I, I don't even like that notion. You know what I mean? Fascinating. I don't think that you as an artist need to sit around for the phone to ring for someone to call you and say, hey, I have the money for you to work now. No, no, you could get out there and do it yourself. There's people who do, you know, web series for zero money and then they sell them and they get their TV show that they were looking for. Um, if you're, if funding is a concern for you, then do something smaller. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's always a way that you, you can get your creative idea out there and done if you really put the time and energy into it and money isn't necessarily always the thing that's going to solve that issue. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, insight for sure. Anyway, uh, I digress back to the, the, it was a TV movie. How did the opportunity happen and, and how did you get involved? In TV? So I had done a, I had done a commercial that was a national commercial. I try to do at least one or two national commercials a year if possible, you know, to mm-hmm. keep things mm-hmm. moving. Um, so I did a commercial and I, uh, I approached Terry actually. And I said, Hey, I have a little bit of money. I'm trying to do this thing. I'm not sure what it is yet. I think it's a pilot and I am a bit rusty when it comes to directing. Cause I hadn't directed anything since high school. So I was like, you know what, let me go to somebody that I trust. And I trusted Terry and I said, Hey, do you want to come on board with this thing? Help me produce and help direct this thing. And, uh, he said, yes. I mean, project would have never been the same thing without the guy. You know what I mean? He saw so many things in that project that I didn't see. And um, I think that was really a huge learning lesson for me, too, as far as like you talked about the collaborative process. Like, wow, this project became something that I never even intended or I never even saw. And it, it took another creative to come in and, you know, uncover that. And um, in that way, it was like such a beautiful thing because I learned so much from that process. And I love working with T. Uh, you know, he's like one of my favorite creatives that I know personally. So it was really cool working with them and. Ever since then, I try to work with him whenever I possibly can. Yeah. And just for the audience, Julius is talking about Terry Jingles, a friend of the podcast. And um, you can check out his interview in our back catalog that he's done with uh, us. One of the one of the original. I think he was probably one of the first 10 we interviewed. And uh, what a fun Instagram follow as well. So uh, just a cool all around dude. We're going to talk about him and some of your work together a little bit later. Started this off by talking about that quote you had, and, and, and for you, it was about overcoming pain in childhood, and, and then and that allows you to be creative as an adult. Mm-hmm. You also said, you know, you felt the pain of being torn down. We talked about that a little bit, and, and now you've decided to be deliberate about building up others. You know, how, how does pain, I should have sort of asked that right after you said it, but how does pain drive your your self-expression your creative Um, self-expression i guess i guess the best way to answer that would be indirectly you know i I don't know that it's fueling me and so maybe after the fact um you know you kind of go into this weird blackout zone when you're writing something and you don't know exactly why it's coming out or where it's coming from until almost sometimes it takes another person to read it to tell you you know like you realize that character is your mother right or Mm. you realize that this part of the script you're, you're talking about that part of your life. And sometimes I actually really, I don't see those things until after the fact, sometimes I'll read something and I'll realize, Oh my gosh, you know, that time in my life, I was feeling this way. And that that's totally, that's totally coming through in this piece. Um, I think pain, I think pain makes you funny. 
I think it forces you to be comedic. I think it forces you to be light on your feet. Um, I, I think writing is, you know, I like to write things that are comedic, but without being funny on the page, just funny situations. And I think in order to have that mind frame, I think there needs to be a little pain in the background. There needs to be a little bit of discomfort. You know what I mean? Because you have no reason to be funny or outgo- not outgoing, but um, I guess like charismatic or anything if, if everything's going well for you and going easy for you. So I think sometimes that kind of pressure, as they say, makes diamonds. Um, and I consider my work to be those diamonds and the pressure that made those is some things that were probably more difficult than uh, a lot of other people may have dealt with. Yeah. And you really are funny. I watched uh, a little rough cut <laughs> of uh, white sheets oh, and thank you. I just, I found myself uh, laughing at the situation, just like you said. Um, and I thought, okay, uh, yeah, I could see how this is going to be a feature. Um, I could actually see how three dog night could be a feature. You kind of almost went there as thank well, you. which is another one of your films. Uh, so we'll talk about that. But I do want to talk about what's coming up next, going again, taking you back behind the camera. Uh, you have a film coming up, Sock and Buskin. Tell us about Sock. Right, and, yeah. Am I pronouncing that correctly? That's correct. Yeah. So okay. Sock and Buskin is uh, I'm sure you've seen, you know, comedy and tragedy, the little masks. Mm-hmm. Those are the, that's a Sock and Buskin. Oh, so okay. um, this is a movie. It's about uh, two comedians that are uh, trying to make it in Los Angeles and to uh, make ends meet, they actually do petty crime. <laughs> and uh, during one of these petty crime schemes, one of them actually gets arrested and goes to jail for eight years. And the other one steals the guy's material and became, becomes rich and famous from his material. And then eight years later, the guy gets out of jail and confronts his old best friend. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's like, it's a, it's a tragic comedy or, or a comedic tragedy, whichever one you want to go with. Um, so we kind of started shooting it with zero money a couple years ago and I got about halfway through and realized I have to do this correctly. I got to do this right. You know, I started watching the dailies and I started watching the cut as it was progressing and I just got, Oh my God, like, this is so good. But what's not living up to the standards here is the production value. You know what I mean? We need equipment, we need money, and we need a crew. So we stopped halfway through, and I decided that we were going to try to find financing for this film, uh, micro-budget financing. Um, so we actually just started the process of starting a GoFundMe for this movie. Um, we're hoping that it goes live within the next two weeks now. So um, be on the lookout for that. And we're looking to raise $100,000, which I'm sure you know for a feature is like basically $0.00. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we would probably, if we weren't on this podcast, probably tell you to just increase the budget uh, just for the sake of the investors. But, you know, it's a whole different podcast and conversation. But, I'll you know, yeah. I, I will say this. Um, the. Um, I would love to read it. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you were able to send it to me, but I would love to read the the, the screenplay. Um, and I'm, I'm sure my partner, Nick would just eat it up too. So I, yeah, let's, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to get back on that for sure. I want to talk about the, the film I, I just watched uh, a moment ago, a piece of it, white sheets. And, uh, you did that with our friend, Terry, uh, jingles, which we just talked about. So I want to bring it back to that a little bit. First, um, how did you how did you meet Terry? 
So I met Terry, we were both working in LA and I had known that he was a filmmaker and I was a writer and I'd always wanted to work with him, but I just didn't know in what capacity. And then when I finally got to a, chan a chance to uh, produce Americana, that's when we finally actually got to work together professionally. It was just two guys working in LA, very close to each other. He actually lives and still lives like two blocks away from me. So we were like <laughs> right there. I see him at the grocery store all the time. So we live very close by. That's awesome because that means you guys are going to get to work together. It's easy to work together based just on proximity alone. So this is yeah, for sure. I mean, I spent, times. I spent hours and hours at his apartment while we edited Americana. So <laughs> that's basically my apartment now. Well, you know, the one thing I noticed about your style of writing and White Sheets does this. And I, I want you to tell us about White Sheets a little bit because um, it has it, it, it's funny and then you do these things where you have these animated interjection interjections. You did this yeah. in uh, uh, Element, your short film Element, and you did this <laughs> with White Sheets. It's uh, and then you use a very particular type of font in most of your work as well in the titling, and it's uh, almost a calling card of yours. Um, so I want to know a little bit about what the audience is supposed to to think of that and take from those moments. Uh, but I also want to compliment you on on how uh, cool your reversals are. It's it's like you mentioned in Sock and Buskin, where you think something's going to happen, then something happens for somebody else, and then you have to figure it out. Uh, right. your, your graphic novel, uh, Mister Misery, uh, has a similar thing. You've got this uh, this character named Horace. Um, he hires a hitman to kill himself because he's a struggling, failing <laughs> poet. Then he falls in love. And now he's got to call it off. And the first thing I thought was it would be a great comedy or dramedy even if there was a rule in, in the hitman world that you can't just call out. A, you can't just tear up a contract. Yeah, I'm pretty so once, sure there is. <laughs> so once there's a contract out, he yeah. has to kill you. Even, Absolutely. Like you can't change your mind once you want even yourself dead. And so yeah. Horace has to go through the world and try to figure out how to not get killed uh, because now he's in love. And right, so, yeah, I love it. Yeah. And you have that style. You tell stories like that where it's doom early mm -hmm. and then something happens. But then it, it's doom anyway. <laughs> yeah. And it ends up kind of being doom anyway. Right. But, but, yeah, can, yeah. Can, can, and it's always about uh, um, love, mm -hmm. which, which, which I like. So I just wanted to compliment you on that. But, but tell us about your style using this. This, and to describe it to the audience that's listening, it's almost like a, it's like a cursive font that you use on all that's your right, film. Yeah. And then you'll have like a regular scene going and you'll just you'll just intercut a regular scene and have a cartoon play for like one and a half seconds and then go right back <laughs> yeah. to the scene. Or uh, you'll do Charlie Chaplin style and you'll have an interjection. So we hear the inner monologue of the character and then go back to the scene. So. Uh, what's that about? What should we take from that as an as audience? What are you trying to get across to us? You know what, man? I grew up watching movies. I grew up watching movies and loving movies and, you know, shit like that is like Oliver Stone is just planted in my head. And somewhere along the line that came out in that piece. And then, you know, somewhere else there's Tarantino, which, you know, might explain some of the dialogue choices and why my characters like to talk so much and have conversations. Um, you know, I just I, I've been so inspired by just fantastic filmmakers my whole life. And I think a lot of that comes out in my work. Um, as far as the font goes, I like to have like a 
like a handwritten looking font. I, I almost like there to be like some a human element to it. You know what I mean? I feel like sometimes title cards can feel very uh, computerized, and I feel like bringing a little uh, a little human touch is nice. You know what I mean? Um, as far as like the little the cartoon things, uh, specifically that was because I was actually having trouble with the edit. Uh. <laughs> so as much as I would like to take that as a stylistic choice, it was more of a choice of necessity because I was having trouble with that edit, and then I couldn't figure out why I wasn't. I wasn't being, I wasn't able to capture what was going on internally with the characters. And I thought, okay, how do I show what's going on internally with the characters? Right. And then I said, and then I said, oh, I shit, I don't have the footage for that because, you know, we shot this on a $0 budget. <laughs> so then I had to, I had to figure out a way to show their, what's going on internally with um, some supplemental footage. And it ended up being some old Looney Tunes footage that I cut wow. in there, uh, which I actually thinks it actually works pretty well. It, it did. wasn't it my did. first choice, though, but it did. And, and so many times independent filmmakers try to do those things. They try to force uh, the issue with you to show that they're an auteur. Yeah. And it really doesn't work. Sometimes it's cringy. It's like, oh, you really are trying and we can tell or or that's just poor taste. And the thing that stood out about your choices is I think you might be an auteur. I think if you nail those elements, um, they were very tasteful and Thank funny. You. Thank you so much. And and uh, and I and by the way, functional. I did know what the character was thinking based on the cartoon you put awesome. in. Awesome, right? So because people will do that and it'll be like, yeah, I didn't Why get it. Why is that there? Right. Right. Or they'll do an entire short film and the whole point is that the character never speaks, but they don't explain. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it's like, what are we watching? Or, you know, <laughs> the, the film is uh, uh, railroad tracks and uh, it's railroad tracks for three or four minutes. And then there's and a then train. title cards. <laughs> yeah. And then somebody walks across and then it's like a metaphor. Right. And I'm like, come on, come on. And then they gaslight you and like, well, if you didn't yeah, get yeah. it, if you didn't get it, then. Yeah, you're just you're not very intelligent, there. You're not <laughs> so deep enough to understand the depth of my art. <laughs> right. So thank you for not gaslighting us. Thank you for just giving us something that we can watch and be entertained by. And thank you for enjoying it, man. I really appreciate that. Really, I really, really do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've been around a while. You've 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 done it all: directed, producing, executive producing, modeling, acting. So, what are the two best pieces of advice you've received so far in your career, and, and who did they come from? Uh, the two best pieces of advice. Oh, wow. That's, you know, that's a great question. Uh, so I'm not trying to, I don't want to think about it too long and keep you waiting. Best piece of advice. Um, slow down. My dad used to tell me that slow down, you know, be patient. Um, yeah, just don't rush. You know what I mean? You're right on time. You know, I feel like a lot of the time, especially in this town, it's like you're you're so goal oriented and you're rushing towards that goal. And in rushing so much, you forget to enjoy the journey. And it, it, it's all about the journey. It's all about the process. You know, the final project, the final product, that's cute and everything. But what you'll really remember is the moments where you were making it happen. Yeah. You know what I mean? You'll remember the brush strokes. And you'll fucking forget about the painting. You know what I mean? And that 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 kind of sticks in my head is to just enjoy enjoy what you're doing. 
Enjoy this moment where you're pitching. Enjoy this moment where you're writing. Because once the thing is done, it's done. And now it's just there for people to judge. But the creating that thing is where the real beauty is for me. You know, that's where I'm at my happiest. I mean, after I finish something, I'm lost. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't even know if I'm coming or going. It's like, that was my everything. And now it's just there and it's done. But I end up missing tweaking it and adding to it. You know, once that's over, it, it, it does. It feels a little, you know, I feel a little lost after that. Yeah. How many times have we heard retired athletes say, what I miss the most is the locker room. Exactly. Exactly. You miss those times. No, exactly. You miss those times on set with the people talking about it with the actors. Um, I mean, that's all, that's, that's what we do it for, man. No one gets into it going like, uh, I just want there to be a movie. No, you want to make a movie. It's the making of the movie. That's what the, that is that we fall in love with. You know what I mean? That's the best part, man. I mean, I think, I've heard people say, you know, the worst day on set, still a fantastic day. Yeah. It's still the best, it's still the best day. Uh, yeah. I, I always, uh, tell my kids, I have three kids. I always tell them, uh, who has it better than us? And then they reply, True, nobody. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, on Tarantino sets, they have this thing, which, you know, not to, not to jack them, but I want to, I want to adopt this so bad because it like, it really sums up exactly how I feel. And it's like, everybody's tired on set. We just did a take. Everybody wants to go home, but we're going to do one more take. And he always asks, he goes, why? And the entire crew goes, because we love making movies. And that's what it's all about, man. It's like, fuck being tired, bro. We love making movies. So this ain't nothing. It's it's just fun. We're out here having fun. Beautifully, beautifully said. Um, What's the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome as a filmmaker? and, And how did you overcome it? I know there are people uh, in this audience some, that will that will be listening close to this. I think something that I, I uh, kind of alluded to previously was that um, you don't have to wait for anybody to allow you to get stuff done. I think I, you know, there was years where I fell into that rut of like, I have to find someone to finance this or else I can't do it or I can't be creative because nobody's producing my work. No, that's not it, man. It's like especially nowadays you have every, you have access to so many different things go get a friend get your iphone out go out in some natural sunlight and you can shoot a movie yeah so i think uh i think that was my biggest challenge was myself you know i think a lot of creative people are like that we hold ourselves back and i think once i let that shit go it felt so much more like smooth sailing after that because i realized wow Nobody has to tell me I can get this done. I can actually just go out and get it done. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's like, have I started films and run out of money and not finished them? Yeah. Have I started projects where I realized, oh my gosh, I can't do this without financing? Yeah. But did I learn something from all that shit? Absolutely. Did I get better from doing all those things? Yes, I did. Um, So yeah, I think that was my biggest problem was I was holding myself back. And I think a lot of creative people have that issue, especially in this industry, because it is, it's, you know, it's the two ton pencil. It's like, you need a whole (laughs) group of people to get this thing that you wrote down done. And it feels so daunting sometimes that it feels, it feels like it can't be done, but that is not true. That is not true at all. That's what they lead. They want you to believe that. They want you to believe that, you know, but it's not true. You don't need permission. 
you absolutely do not need permission. One of the, um, one of the most brilliant things about being a creative is that it's permissionless work. And it's yeah. so few work that exists in the world is like that. You know, if you, mm-hmm. even if you work at McDonald's, you need permission to go there from whoever yeah, manages the store. Uh, so enjoy being a creative and enjoy doing permissionless and, work. You know, that's a double edged sword because you are your own boss. You know, like yeah. when it's time to sit down and write, you better make sure your ass sits down and writes because no one's coming to your rescue to do that for you. You know what yeah. I mean? So again, it's that double-edged sword of like, yeah, it's great to have that freedom, but also that freedom comes with a price sometimes. And, uh, you just gotta be diligent, man. You really do. Yeah. Uh, we interviewed a, a great writer named Priscilla Wise, um, probably last year or so. And she has, uh, this, this rubric you can use to, to, create that discipline. And, uh, it starts with five minutes. So you schedule five minutes on your calendar. And if you're married or in a relationship, you schedule the five minutes on the shared calendar and, uh, and you sit down and all you're going to do is you're going to write just for five minutes. And as soon as five minutes and one seconds hits, get up. And then Mm -hmm. you do that for, you know, a week, like five days. And then you add then the next time it's 10 minutes. There and, you go. But what you'll find out is you actually have a lot of written work in just those five minute sessions in one week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ends up being incredible and it, and it snowballs and it creates a habit in the most easy, easy way. Um, speaking of habits, what are the uh, biggest creative and business mistakes you see newcomers making? Creative and business mistakes. Let's see. Um Well, I, I would split the two in half because I don't like creativity and business for me are like, it's just like two opposite things. I, I, I personally, I, I'm trying to get better at the business aspect and I'm not trying to say that I hate it, but I hate it. I don't like the business side of things. <laughs> I'm strictly a creative. I am forced into the business side because that's just what this industry requires. But I think, um, the biggest setbacks for people creatively is like I said, is just not getting the work done. You know what I mean? There's a lot of people out there that are idea people and they have all these ideas and then I'd say, okay, so where is it? An idea is just one thing. I mean, you have to actually execute this thing. And I see a lot of that. And it's not that they can't execute it. It's that they don't have the power to just sit down and do it. I think that takes a lot of solitude. It takes being very stingy with your time and energy and being selfish with your time and energy. And I think that's not easy for a lot of people. You know, I've sacrificed a lot to get what I've gotten done. Um, and you hope that you have people around you that understand that, which is very, very important. Um, business wise, um, business wise that, you know, I think what holds people a lot of, a lot back business wise is thinking that somebody is going to help them and getting comfortable in that. Uh, Like I remember early on, I've met with producers and I thought, oh, well, that's it. (laughs) <laughs> they're they're going to they're gonna love this project, and now uh, it's, it's going to be easy from here. That's right. not the case. It never really gets easy. Um, the quote that I love is, uh, before enlightenment, uh, chop wood and carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. process has the same no matter up here or down here. And I think that's what kind of happens is sometimes you get to a point you get comfortable from a business standpoint and uh, – that's, that's when it can get a little scary. You know what I mean? You got to stay on your toes and make sure you're still working hard for that next one. 
Do you think that it was a mistake for Lynn manuel Miranda to, to apologize uh, for, for In the Heights? How would you have handled that? Man, you know, it's you're never going to please everybody. Um, as far as him apologizing, I think there's going to be a lot of that because of the climate that we're in. I think that it's a mistake only because I don't think, I think that ends it. You, you apologize and then it's over. So now we've completely avoided a chance to have a conversation and for somebody to be understanding. Now we don't need to explain anything to him because he's apologized. The conversation's over. I'm under, I'm more uh, under the impression that you should learn something from these moments. Maybe he could have learned something if we actually had a conversation about it instead of forcing him into a corner where he felt like, like you said, I don't want the drama. I'm just going to apologize and let it go. Um, You know, I, I, I just, I, I come from a time, I guess, as you probably do too, where things weren't as politically correct. So some things kind of just go right over my head completely. (laughs) Um, If somebody felt slighted, I'm not going to say, oh, you shouldn't have been offended. I'm never one to do that. Um, You know, suffering is suffering, whether it's big or small. Um, So if somebody felt slighted, they have the right to speak up. Um, I think him as an artist has a right to ignore that as well if he wanted to. And I think I think either way, this is going to blow over. But yeah, it's just, you know, it's it's all so complicated, man. It really is. It's like you said, it's the number one movie in America. All these people are loving it. You know, it's got this great rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And then somebody has to get in and kind of sour it by having an issue. But again, that's just the world we live in nowadays. You know what I mean? People are going to be offended. Even if there's something that we might not necessarily see. And that's just something we're going to have to accept. Um, I, 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 as far as the apology goes again, I, I wish there would have been more dialogue about the whole thing. And I feel like when you either cancel somebody or you force them to apologize, there's zero learning. Yeah. And isn't that what it's supposed to be about? Shouldn't he have understood what they were talking about instead of having to feel like he needed to just apologize and get it pushed under the rug? Um, I'm sure there's somebody more intelligent than I that, you know, has a better answer. Um, I mean, you're right. It's I complex. Personally just, it's very complex. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's complex because a part of me says, well, we know unconscious bias is real because there's been studies done on it where you'll flash mm-hmm. a, a black face in front of somebody. But so fast that your subconscious sees that your conscious maybe doesn't see it or barely sees it. And you'll say, oh, I don't like that. It's dangerous. Right. So you unconsciously are afraid of of a black face versus some, let's say, a white face. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you're in the cat, when you're casting and someone's auditioning, that's dark skin. Is there something unconscious there where you somehow liked the lighter skin person? Right. It's performance better than darker skins person. Then the other side of me says, well, I'm in this business. And unless you're like the first named or second named person in the movie, mm-hmm. you are living gig to gig. And so you tell me yeah. what uh, Afro Latino, Afro Latinx artist that's light skin you're going to take out and replace. So, so whose whose rent doesn't get paid? Whose child doesn't right. get fed? 
You you make the call. You want a darker skinned person there? Okay, well, you just took somebody else's job who's literally working gig to gig as well. Yeah, and again, it's like it could be something as small as, you know, yeah, for sure, of course. And maybe it could have been something as small as, you know, some of the Dominican actors that came in didn't rock the audition the same. You know, it's like maybe he just cast the best talent. And yes. the last thing you want to do is, uh, like you said, recast somebody based on appearance you know what i mean you, you want the best person to be in the picture and if the best person happens to be two shades lighter it's like i think we're nitpicking at this point i think we should i think we should be happy about this moment and that now we're infighting it's like yeah it's, i you know I, for me it's just I, I just want people to be happy i want there to be brown faces on the screen and if there's brown faces on the screen i am happy now what shade of brown they are now you're, you're you're wigging me out here. I'm like, right? Because nobody I, can so control like what shade of brown much. you are. <laughs> anyway, you're born yeah, exactly. Shade of brown you're you know what be. I mean? <laughs> exactly. So it's like now we're getting into this other conversation that I'm not even. I don't even know how to approach. This is like an anthropological <laughs> study at this point. I don't know what the hell. So I just you know, I just I just wish people would just. Uh, you know, I mean, who am I to say? But I really just wish people would just let's just all take it easy, man. You know, let's all just take it easy. Yeah. Let's just let's make beautiful art. Let's make beautiful things. And if somebody has the right to, you know, stand up and say, I'm offended by this, then, you know, we should have the right to say, nah. Yeah. Or let me hear it. Let me hear you out. But after we hear you out, if we collectively say, like, well, you know, we, we don't necessarily agree with that. Then we have to keep it moving. We can't, you know, we can't let that hold us back further. That does it. That's counterproductive to me. Right. We don't want the benchmark of merit to be the shade of your skin. Uh, Please. Yeah, absolutely not. That's, yeah. Uh, that's the worst. And I saw the trailer for a new movie that's going to come out soon. It's called Karen. And yes, uh, and in this I'm actually movie, working with the uh, I'm working with the casting director from Karen. Okay, so Karen uh, had a bad reaction on Twitter because there's people saying that they're being derivative of Jordan Peele and some other shows. Mm -hmm. But the the core of the movie is, is that these white people are terrorizing me. Um, Is this is is. First of all, is that is that a good premise uh, in in sort of this politically charged time? Like, what is what is our role? What is Hollywood's role in 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 sort of putting out content that that either divides or, or unites? And then also, are you a little bit nervous about um, the the sort of reaction or overreaction to anything that's happening? Because because um, I think we're going to get a bunch of great documentaries and, and films that have black folks in them. And then we're going to get a bunch of people who I think are making movies that are trying to uh, sort of tag along a little bit and ride a wave. Like this is hot. It becomes right now. exploitation at some point. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, on should we be demonizing white people in a, in a movie? Uh, and, and are we going to um, see about a hundred of these films before the moment passes? Well, I would say that, Hollywood historically has had no problem marginalizing black people. Yes. So I don't have any problem demonizing white people <laughs> in, in, in this Karen movie. Yeah. <laughs> That's stuff. the short answer. 
Um, I have not seen the trailer for Karen yet, so yeah. I can't really speak on that particular film. But I have to admit, when I did hear the concept, I thought it was a bit novel. Mm. You know, I thought, okay, well, this is kind of gimmicky. But that does not mean that it won't be a good picture. Right. You know, it might be very entertaining. I love Taryn Manning, I think, who's playing Karen. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm more just the I'm, new black. Yeah, that's right. And Hustle mm-hmm. and Flow. Yep. So I'm I'm reserving judgment until after I see the film. Um, um, as far as demonizing white people, again, I guess it would only be considered demonizing if you haven't been watching the news. Yeah. You know, I think art is a reflection of the world that we're in, and that's the fucking world that we're in right now. So of course, people are going to make movies about it. People are going to make music about it. And people yeah. are going to write poems about it. And that's you know, all we can do is try to just get better. Um, that being said, I, I, again, I, I do see that somewhat being, it's a bit expletive or exploitative. And, um, I don't know. I, I, I like things that are more, uh, I don't know how to say it exactly. They can stand the test of time. They're not just in this small moment. Um, I, I know that I don't really go back and watch lots of movies that are specific to an era and if it's out of that era, you almost it doesn't feel or make much sense anymore. Yeah. Um, it's almost like making jokes, you know, like if somebody says uh, her eyebrows are on fleek in a movie, it's like, that's not going to age well. <laughs> no one's going to know what the fuck fleek is in 12 years. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, so that's kind of how I feel about those ideas. It's like it's just gimmicky. It's it's a novelty at the moment. I don't know if they'll necessarily stand the test of time. Maybe they will. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope so. Um, I do right. want to see the film though. Right. Cause, cause we're going to get, you know, we got like black Klansmen, which really worked. That's a sort of historical piece. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we got, um, well, we got, what was the one from, um, last year that got nominated? Uh, Judas and the black Messiah. Judas, Judas floored me. Which, floored okay. Me. Uh, Keith was amazing. Why was there no, why was there no, uh, why is there two supporting actors? Who, who's the who's the lead in that movie? Then I don't know. If, if I had to pick the lead, uh, I, I you know I guess the main character would be Daniel uh, Kaluuya. But but I thought like See, Keith. Now I thought it was the opposite. So I thought like Keith. I thought I thought like Keith should have won. And you, I thought I I haven't seen the Keith. Stanfield do better, and I didn't see anybody from any movie that I saw this year except maybe Raz from uh, Sound of Metal. Or Riz, oh God, Riz. he was yeah. so good, man. Yeah, he was uh, so good. He might be the only one that I thought got close to what Lakeith was able to pull off uh, yeah. in, in that movie. And I just hope people go see it and don't get wound up by the politics of it. And I'm with you. I, I want to see a movie um, before before I judge it. And so I just wonder: Are we going to get movies that that that, like you say, um, you know? last and stand the test of time like american history x is still super powerful yeah. for that moment uh are we going to get films like that that come and 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 last but 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 show the black side of things or are we right. going to get are we going to get a bunch of movies that are trying to basically cash in on on what yeah. jordan peele started uh with 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 get out so it'll, it'll be interesting to see exactly yeah i think uh I'm hoping for the first, you know, I, I hope that we make movies that are universally understood as opposed to something like 
a little more niche where you go, well, I don't know. I don't know if everyone around the world would understand that, you know, racism is a universal thing. It's something that everybody can understand. Whereas maybe a crazy white lady who doesn't like you skateboarding in front of her house because she's psychotic might not be something that everybody understands. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, you mentioned Quentin Tarantino, one of my faves. Uh, we have, I think one more movie, apparently that he's going to make and then he's done that's what he says uh but but which creatives do you most admire and and want to emulate and what do you think they do from a technical or skill standpoint that sets them apart um you know i'm still just trying to get on william shakespeare's level man <laughs> i mean I, I don't get much better than that guy he, billy shakespeare fantastic i yeah man old billy shakespeare um you know, I just, I love writing. So most of my inspiration comes from directors who are also writers for the most part, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm inspired by a lot of different filmmakers. Uh, as far as like how I'd like to maybe. And they can be writers, career, Julius, like guys, like, by the way. You can tell me if it's yeah, just writers yeah. and not filmmakers. That's fine too. It's probably filmmakers, though, because I do. You know, once you write something, you want it to be filmed. So there is okay, the, like gotcha. all encompassing aspect of that. So guys like Rob Reiner is one that I don't hear a lot of people talk about, but like a career like Rob Reiner's man is like, that's incredible. I mean, the guy is eclectic. It's like, it's all these different kinds of movies. He's doing every genre. He's doing fantasy. He's doing horror. He does drama. He does the uh, coming of age story. I mean, the guy is just, it was a beast, man. Um, I would love to see him make a new film. Um, How good was he in Wolf of Wall Street? <laughs> dude, I mean, yeah, and he's a fantastic actor. I mean, I grew up watching him in, uh, is it All in the Family? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I grew I up watching so. him in that. So, you know, The Princess Bride, Misery. Oh, Princess Bride is my favorite movie of all time. Oh, well, then you know, man. It's yeah. like I'm so inspired by guys like that who have an eclectic um, nature to their career. You know, they never got pigeonholed into doing one thing. And that's kind of how I feel. You know, I like to do comedy. I like to do drama. I want to do a horror movie. I want to do a sci-fi film. You know, I don't want to be in some sort of box that says like, oh, this is what you do. You do that well. So that's all you're allowed to do now. It's like, no, that's not fun for me. Um, I like to do all types of different things because I have all types of different um, fascinations and, and things that I'm interested in. I feel like that'd be a great TikTok or Instagram challenge for you to do, like for you to put out into the world. Like challenge two people to recreate uh, the Wesley and Vincini scene from The Princess Bride. Oh my God! The, the I would battle, love that. the battle of wits. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, just see who that can recreate it the best out in the out in the world. You know, <laughs> you end up getting like a that. million a million videos in your inbox, like of people recreating. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Be, people love that movie. It's such a universally loved movie, so I'm sure people would do a good job with that. Feel free to take it and run, brother. Uh, <laughs> if you had one month to teach someone, just someone lay off the street, if you had one mm-hmm. month to teach someone how to be a competent writer or director, you pick, what would be the first three things you would teach them? You've got one month. What would be the first three first things you would teach them? Learn to be alone would be number one. Now, is this writing or directing? This is writing. Okay. Let's Everything go with that writing. I approach is from a writing standpoint because I feel like deep down, 
after you wipe everything away, I am truly a writer first and foremost. So everything kind of is funneled through that lens first for me. Um, so yeah, I guess step one would to be be alone. Mm-hmm. Step two would to be never stop learning. And shit, step three would be be alone. <laughs> and when you say never stop learning, is there any books you, you'd put in their hands to teach them something? Um, I... I don't know that you can necessarily learn what you need to learn being a writer from books. I think life Mm. experience is the best teacher. Um, So just as important as being alone is being out in the world is also equally as important because what you'll write when you're 15 years old compares to what you'll write when you're 25 years old compared to what you'll write when you're 35 years old. It changes drastically because your life experience changes. You know, how can you speak from a different character's voice if you don't know where they're coming from or met a person like that before? Um, I think having conversations with people that you don't necessarily agree with is very important because you can learn from them and understand their perspective. And then when it comes to write a character like that, it comes from a genuine, authentic place because you can put yourself in their shoes. Um, I I find a lot of dialogue to be like unbelievable for that reason, because it just sounds like one person talking to the same person. You know, and there's no definitive, um, there's no definitive personality to these characters. Sometimes I notice, and that takes meeting a lot of people, you know, and seeing a lot of people and observing a lot of people. Um, so I guess I could just break it down into two things. I would tell them to be alone, and when you're not alone, get out and have new experiences. Yeah, observe and have new experiences. I actually agree with that quite a bit. Uh, a lot of times people will say, go read bird by bird, or they'll say, uh, go get a McPhee, take a McPhee class, um, yeah. or, you know, go get the screenwriter's Bible or, um, by David Trottier or, or I've or, never or, read a screenwriting book in my life. Yeah. And, and you're doing no it. offense to anybody who does. I just personally, I've never read one before. Yeah. And, and I find that the, the people I love the most, um, they tend to have just a rich, uh, ex, uh, experiential life. They're interesting mm-hmm. people off the page and unusual people, you know, off the page. And, and that like, like go to Cuba and walk Hemingway's house and then you'll be right. like, Oh, I get it. I get, it. I don't agree exactly. with it. I don't completely, you know, <laughs> he did shelter away a 15 year old as his muse. Yeah. But, yeah. But then you get how he was able to do what he was, was, was doing. Um, You've been really great. This has been an incredible time. And, and thank you so much. Enjoy, man. enjoy talking to you, relate to so much of it. You once said the caged heart stays tamed while love lays in the wild. That's beautifully poetic. <laughs> thank and you. Uh, I think about that. And I thought about that quote all, all week. Um, what, what prompted that? And, and, and what does it mean to you? I mean, a lot of my stuff I write about is love and understanding love and misunderstanding love. Um, So that's just, you know, that's just a play on that exact same thing. Just the theme of love and not understanding love, having love, wanting to get away from it, even though you have it. Um, That that one in particular was uh, I wrote that from the perspective of a young girl who was being sheltered by an older man Mm -hmm. and that she has this 
heart that is, you know, it's caged up, but her love lays out in the wild and he's kind of keeping her caged in. Um, so that's what that was about. Um, but yeah, I just, I write so much about love and just trying to understand and articulate love. I think it's such a difficult thing to do. And a lot of my writing is just probably me trying to personally uncover what is love to me? You know, why is it so important? Why does it keep me going? Yeah. Or why does it break me down? Yeah. I, I, it made me think about some of the innocent lies we tell each other in relationships. Um, some of the socially acceptable lies, like, you know, I, you know, I, I need to think about my, my family. So I need to shelter my real desire from them. Right. But that's a type of lie and a type of repression that's going to cause you to be sad. And we do that on both sides. Very of true. It had me think about this sort of uh, Rilke, the, the, the poet, the great German poet um, who I love, talked about uh, space and that true love is about space. It's about uh, being additive to what someone else wants to do. And other people think that right. love is about tying closely together. No. It's about no. letting someone be the themselves to an extreme level and yes. then being able to add to what they're trying to do. You should be complimentary to your partner. Yep. Yep. You know what I mean? I think, I mean, the old adage, uh, if you love something, let it go. That doesn't necessarily mean let someone leave your life. Yeah. It means let them live and they shall come back to you because that's true love is yes. Giving each other space and knowing that that space will be refilled when you reconvene. And I think a lot of people, like you said, yeah, they think love is this, but you're right. No, love is love is this. You're, yeah. you're totally right about that. I've used this analogy before. So forgive me, uh, audience, if you're listening and you've heard this before, but I just love the concept of it because it's something you can show someone, Julius. Like if you sit down at a piano and on your left hand, if you play um, B flat or, or A sharp mm -hmm. and then right next to it, play B, it sounds mm -hmm. terrible when they're really close like this, like your hands are right next to each other. But if you will just take um, the B flat down one octave and take the B up one octave, it's beautiful. See, it's the, it's the space between the love is where you find harmony. Right. And you find that harmony. And then, you know, maybe uh, your right hand suggests the left hand, you know, play the F sharp. <laughs> and then it's really nice um so much fun where can everybody just see what we've been talking about this whole time where can they find you on the internet find you on social media where can they see some of your work and and when can we expect to see um sock and and, and buskin and and maybe uh white sheets uh the full well, you can uh you can see me on instagram or twitter my handle is clash act that's C-A-L-A-S-H-A-C-T, all one word. Um, currently, we're, we're about to start the GoFundMe to try and raise the financing for Sock and Buskin. So we're hoping that goes live within the next two weeks. Uh, we have our first pitch meeting for White Sheets, trying to get that feature funded. We have our first pitch next month, so we're really excited for that. And uh, I'm trying to get myself pumped up and primed for my first pitch because I'm not exactly a, a pitch guy. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's going to be kind of strange for me selling myself, but that's, that's what we're working on right now is trying to, uh, like I said, get better at the business side of things, because unfortunately you got to have a little bit of it in this business or else it's, it's really hard to get anywhere. Right. Show business. And, and for the audience, just so you know, 
Uh, Julius is no joke. He's he's reached second round of, of Blacklist. He won Best Screenplay for White Sheets at the L.A. Indie Film Festival in 2016. Uh, so he is he is no joke, and he is uh, ascending rapidly. We'll end it with this. You were in the movie Like Mike in 2001, 2002 with, with Bow Wow. Who you got, Bow right. Wow or, or Soldier Boy? In this in this online beef they have, and 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 who are you breaking out your your black belt in taekwondo for? Yo, bro, I'm I'm sorry to my man Jack Moss Bow Wow, but Big Draco Soldier Boy has to win that battle. I love Soldier Boy. I'm a Soldier Boy apologist. <laughs> that man is first to everything, and you better put some respect on his name. I love Soldier <laughs> Boy. I love crank that. I love pop about the bed i love I, you know what soldier boy doesn't get the respect that he deserves because a lot of these internet rappers they wouldn't be here without soldier boy and that's facts yeah soldier boy i think uh definitely has songs that i actually like i don't know what the charts say like the like who got higher on the hot 100 or whatever but songs mm-hmm. i played it would have to be soldier like soldier without like like by a mile like i never remember yeah like bumping Bow Wow. I always thought Bow Wow was derivative somehow of Criss Cross. Oh my God. I loved Criss Cross growing up. Jeez. Yeah. I always that was my first that. tape I ever had. Yeah. I love it. I still, my name is Chris. So, you know, well, I'm bumping it. <laughs> Jermaine Dupree uh, did both of them, right? He mm-hmm. produced both of them. So in a way, I guess it was a little derivative. That was kind of his, his shtick was getting these younger, uh, these younger acts and putting them out there. Yeah. And then he talked to Scooter Braun well and then Scooter himself, Braun man. did it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, I appreciate you playing along with that last one. Uh, great stuff. And uh, I hope to see you again soon. Um, if I come out to L.A., uh, let's go to the alcove together and, and have um, a breakfast bowl and some coffee. That would be great, man. I'm looking forward to that. All right, man. And word to uh, Terry Jingles again for the recommendation. Julius, best of luck to you in all that you do. And even though you, I know you don't need it, I'll talk to you soon. I appreciate it, sir. Thank you so much, man. All right. Take care. Bye. All right, brother. Later. Later. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice, by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click Contribute. Contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film and you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at Flaming Your Heart. That's F-L-A-M-E-I-N-U-R-H-E-A-R-T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, Go to www.bonsai.film and click on services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, 
and thank you for listening.